0: ...my want to say hello to those that are gathered in Lakeville. Invite all of you, if you would, to uh, go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, that's where we'll be uh, this morning. We did start a new series last week um, uh, in the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you missed last week, uh, we just did kind of an introduction to the book, give you a little bit of a taste and flavor of what we're going to be doing over the next several months. So feel free to go online. Uh, If you weren't here last week, if you've not already done that, and you can catch up on uh, just kind of the introduction. We we talked more about the background and things like that. The series we're calling No Going Back, that's really what this book is all about, and uh, just had some amazing feedback already from the introduction, like I'm almost tempted to just stop the series now, (laughs) all right? It was really positive, the feedback, and I think it's because everybody relates to this idea of going back, because we've all done it. Maybe that's back to an addiction or back to uh, some unhealthy choices or back to a relationship or back to something. And certainly as a Christian, you've experienced this, where where things were going along well and you were maturing in your faith and, and then you just went through a season or a time in your life when it was just really tempting and really easy to shut it down and go back. Well, this book is written for that kind of situation to encourage us that no matter what we're facing, no matter what difficulties we have in life, we are to press forward in our faith. It is always worth it to keep pursuing Jesus. And so that's what this book is uh, meant to do and encourage us in. Now, because it is written to uh, people with predominantly Jewish backgrounds, there's going to be part of this book that's going to be difficult for us. Uh, There's going to be times when we get to certain passages that are going to be hard, and this week is one of those uh, as we look at the rest of chapter 1. And so just pray for me, Uh, sincerely pray for me that this message will be something that encourages your faith this morning, okay? Ready? Ready? Let's do it. Uh, If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to start in verse 4 of Hebrews 1 and then read on down through the beginning of chapter 2. The writer is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. says, verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But the son, of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore... Let's pray together. Would you pray for me and with me this morning as we ask God to come and teach us through His Word? Let's pray. Father, thanks for the time together this morning to to worship You, Uh, the opportunity now to come to Your Word. These are words that give life. Uh, These are words that change life. And so we pray that You would come talk to us, come speak to us as we look to Your Word. And and I I need You... (laughs) so desperately to just come and teach, and Spirit of Truth to guide us into truth. Uh, I I am desperate for you this morning, and I ask that you would glorify yourself through what is said. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said? Amen. 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 You may be seated. His name was Bill Bowerman. Uh, He was the track and field coach at the University of Oregon from 1949 to 1972, and uh, in many ways was considered one of the best uh, coaches in uh, college sports. In fact, in the 24 years that he coached there at University of Oregon, he had four national championships and he coached 33 future Olympians. He was also known for something else. He was one of the early pioneers in um, kind of the fitness movement that's very, very popular still today. If you've never heard of his name, uh, I can assure you that you've heard of the company that he co-founded. It's a company known as Nike. It's kind of making some headlines this weekend, but I'm not going to go there, right? A few years ago, Sports Illustrated did an article about uh, Bowerman and his life and the way that he impacted uh, the runners that were on his team, and they would describe him as he was the kind of coach that would get in your face, the kind of coach that would push you to the limits, the kind of coach that wasn't afraid to challenge you, because he never wanted his players to settle. One of his runners that was interviewed said this, and I quote, When I was 20 years old, I'd never won a race in high school or even broken a 9.15 for a two-mile run. Then, one wet day in May, coach looked at me and said, Are you just in this to do mindless labor? Placing his hand on my neck, he explained that I could either follow his instructions or be off the team. I submitted. Listen to this next phrase. I gave myself fully to his instruction. And a few weeks later in a race against Oregon State, I ran an 8.48, 27 seconds better than my best time ever. After the race, coach came up to me and said, Kenny, even I didn't know you could run that fast." And the article just goes on to talk about how that's the way he was. That's the way he approached his players. He was not about to let his players settle for secondary. Now, my guess is that some of you at some point in your life has had somebody come into your life that did the same thing. You ever had somebody that come into your life that just wasn't going to let you settle? Mediocrity was not going to be an option. For some of you, it was a teacher That was not going to let you settle in the classroom for some of you if you played sports It was a coach like Bowerman that was not going to let you settle on the field for some of you It was a parent that was not going to let you settle in life Others of you you had a friend that came along and they were not going to let you stay down Maybe it was a pastor or a youth pastor that was always challenging your faith to something greater and and likely what they said at the time was not necessarily something you wanted to hear at the time. But you look back now and you're thankful for what they did. You're thankful for what they said because it helped you not settle. Because I don't know everything about you, but I know this about you. Nobody likes the feeling of knowing they settled for secondary, C.S. Lewis says it this way, I love this quote. C.S. Lewis says, Something deep in the human heart breaks at the thought of a life of mediocrity. I mean, seriously, who says, Mmm, mediocrity, I love it? No, nobody says that. Nobody wants to settle for that. But have you ever settled? Do you know that feeling? Has that ever happened in your life? Like uh, maybe you you didn't wait for somebody that held your values and so you settled in your marriage. Or maybe you never did what you felt like God had called you to do or what you really wanted to do and so you settled vocationally. Uh, you didn't take the time to make that nice home-cooked meal and you settled for fast food. Uh, you could have enjoyed rich, full-flavored coffee, but instead you went to Caribou. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I knew that'd get you. I knew that'd get you. If you were asleep, you're now awake. By the way, I'm just kidding. I I like caribou, okay? If you work at caribou, don't revoke my membership, okay? (laughs) The point is we all know that feeling, do we not? We all know that feeling of settling when we could have had more. That That is exactly what these Hebrew Christians are being tempted to do. They're being tempted to settle in their faith, to settle for Judaism, rather than to press forward in Christ. And the writer's not going to let them do it. Quick review that we talked about last week. What we know about these Christians, number one, they had faith. Number two, they'd had faith for a while. Um, the, the writer's going to say, by now you ought to be teachers, you need to grow up, and you haven't. And thirdly, we know that this faith that they've had in Christ uh, has brought suffering into their life. Uh, under Roman authority, they are suffering tremendously because of their faith in Christ. In fact, we gave you the illustration that it's kind of like the rubber bands on the watermelon, that like all this suffering had come in, it's building up pressure in their life until they finally just feel like they're going to explode, right? I mean, it's a, it, they are in a faith crisis. Have you ever been there? Where you're just like, I don't know if I can take more of this. I don't know if I can take another step. That's where they're at, and they're tempted to just settle They think, you know what, Um, Judaism is given an exemption under Roman authority where they don't have to worship Roman gods, so why don't we just go back? And the author, like Bowerman, is saying, not a chance. I am not going to let my fellow Christians settle for secondary. Look at how he starts the book in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. This is the point you can go back online and hear the whole message. Why would you settle for partial when you have the full and final word in Jesus Christ? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you go back to partial things when the full revelation of God has come in his son? Then he moves on to angels, verse four. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now the author brings up the topic of angels. Now you need to understand that the ancient Hebrews were fascinated. This is why it gets a little difficult for us because we don't often think about people that would have had a a background in Judaism, uh, they were fascinated with the idea of angels. In fact, some of them would even go so far as to tip over into worshiping angels. Uh, Paul gives us a flavor of this in Colossians 2 verse 16. "'Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath.' They are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and, talk to me, worship of angels. The ancient Hebrew, the ancient Jewish person was fascinated with the idea of angels. And I would submit to you that we are as well, even in our modern times, You you see it everywhere. You see these things all the time. For instance, how many of you have or know people that have the little angel statues in their home, right? Little cute little baby angel somewhere Uh, or or, uh, TV shows that are all about angels. We have movies that are all about angels. We have sports teams that are named after angels. We call our children our little angels. Granted, they are fallen angels, but they are precious little fallen angels, and all the parents said, amen, all right? We talk about our guardian angel. You ever heard somebody talk about that, like they were in an automobile accident, and they got through it, and they're like, oh, it was my guardian angel that protected me. We are so obsessed with angels, we even want our toilet paper to be angel soft, It's everywhere. Right. This idea of angels. Now, listen, I don't mean to break your heart, but most of that is nonsense. Most of that is nonsense. What I mean is that kind of surface level understanding of angels has been more influenced by the Renaissance than the Bible. We need to think biblically about angels. Now, I don't have time to give you a full uh, overview of uh, the teaching on angels in the Bible, but I'll give you just a few brief things as to what the Bible says about angels. First of all, let's be clear. Nobody's denying that angels play a major role in the Bible, right? Over a 100 times mentioned in the Old Testament and over 160 times in the New Testament. So angels are a very important part of God's plan, Secondly, and this is where the road begins to uh, diverge in terms of the way we tend to think about angels, and that is that warrior, uh, the angels in the Bible are warrior-like creatures. They're warrior-like creatures. They are not. This just makes me want to scream. They are not precious moments figures. I'm just sorry. Right? Go home and shatter those things for. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. But that is not how you need to think about angels. Uh, when people encounter angels in the scripture, they are terrified. Do you remember the Christmas story? I hope you do, right? Uh, you've been to a few of those. Uh, listen to Luke 2 verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they said, oh, look, a cute little angel. <laughs> that is not the response at all. Their response is they were filled with great fear. Moses trembled when he encountered angels. John, in Revelation 22, verse 8, I, John... I am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the word of this book. Don't worship me. Worship God. Worship God. The point is they are awe-inspiring, terrifying beings. These, these are glorious beings that God has created. Thirdly is that angels are usually invisible, but they do take on visible form. And I'm sorry, ladies, don't kill the messenger. They always manifest themselves as male. There is no evidence biblically whatsoever of female angels. Now, I'm not saying that women aren't angelic. I'm just saying women aren't angelic. Okay, that's all I'm saying. (laughs) Guys, you can use that however you want, but don't blame me. Now there's probably reasons for that of which I don't have time to get into, but but biblically they can manifest themselves in uh, a kind of a human form and it's always male in the Scriptures. Now what do angels do? What's their primary uh, job or function? There's a lot, but I'll give you four quick ones. Number one, angels continually worship God. They continually worship God. We see this in Isaiah 6 as well as Revelation 5. Angels are always declaring uh, praise and worship to uh, the Lord. Number two, uh, angels communicate God's message. In fact, the word for angel really is messenger. That's all it is. They are messengers uh, of God and for God. Unto you a child is born. They're declaring the message that God has given them to declare. Thirdly, this is so awesome to think about. Angels comfort people in need. Have you ever thought about that? They comfort people in need. In fact, look at Hebrews 1.14, the last verse of chapter 1. Uh, they Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Do you realize? Oh, I wish I had time to really unpack this. I don't. I'll just... Qu- How amazing is it to think that you have had times in your life, whether you knew it or didn't know it, where God sent an angel to minister to you in your time of need? Now, My guess is that's happened a lot more in your life than you realize. And that's what they do. Now, now I don't. The Bible, as far as I understand, it doesn't teach that you've been assigned a specific guardian angel and ever speaks that way. No, in my life I need fifteen. All right, I don't think one would be enough. Uh, I don't know exactly how that works, but we do know that part of their role is to comfort and to serve people in their need. Lastly, is that angels will collect people at the final judgment. Uh, we see that in Matthew twenty-four and Revelation nineteen and twenty. Uh, well, they we are gather people together for the final judgment day. Now, here's the point. You've zoned out, zoned back in, okay? Um, Angels are really, really important. Amen? Hello? Were you awake during all that? That, That's a pretty important job description. Uh, They are very, very, very significant. But the question that that we should be asking, and I'm sure you're asking at this point, is why is the author even talking about angels? You were asking that, right? I'm sure you were. And, And it's a good question. Why, by verse 4, of all the things you could be talking about, why in the world are you bringing up angels? And here's why. It's because in the Jewish mind, they saw angels as the mediator of the old covenant, the law, uh, the Old Testament. Look, for instance, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, you'll see this. This is the one talking about Moses who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received the living oracles to give us. And then if you jump down to verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Paul says in Galatians three nineteen, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So you have to understand, again, in a, in a, a Jewish mind to whom this sermon is given, this letter is written, going back to Judaism is in a very real way going back to angels. And what the author is wanting to say, I may get excited here, what the author is wanting to say is, listen, uh, angels are significant, angels are important, angels have a, have a wonderful role, but angels are secondary when it comes to the superiority of Jesus. I'm not speaking bad of angels, I'm just saying they don't even come close to Jesus. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's going in this string of verses that he's pulling from the Old Testament to show you why would you settle for angels in light of Jesus? I mean, first of all, Jesus is king. And angels are just servants. Jesus is the king. Angels are just servants of the king. You say, where are you getting this idea of king? The text says son. Yes, but the the passages in the Old Testament that the author's quoting is Psalm 2 and Second Samuel 7, which are messianic passages talking about uh, the Davidic kingdom. In other words, he's not just saying Jesus is divine, which is true. He's saying Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. Angels are just servants of him. Who is greater? Lakeville, everybody. Who is greater, the king or the servants? The king's greater. And that makes sense now as he moves on to, for instance, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn, that is, the one to whom everything belongs, all the inheritance is given into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Come on, come on, think, think, think. If Jesus is king and angels are servants, it means that Jesus gets worship and angels give worship. Hello, McFly. Who is greater, the one who gets worship or the one who gives worship? Duh. It's the one who gets the worship. It's the one who's worthy of worship. It's why the angel in Revelation 22, am I excited? I feel like I'm excited. It's why in Revelation 22 the angel's saying, what are you doing? You're wasting your time worshiping me. You never waste your time worshiping God. Here's the question. Here's the question. Why would you be preoccupied with angels when angels are preoccupied with Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. Like maybe you ought to be preoccupied with the one they're preoccupied with. Let me bring this into our world. Why would you be preoccupied with saints when saints are preoccupied with Jesus? Oh, no, he didn't. Yeah, I did. I'll get emails on that and I don't care. You think you're picking on Catholics. I'm about to pick on you, so just wait, all right? Why would you be preoccupied with saints when saints are preoccupied with Jesus? Why are you preoccupied with creation when creation is declaring the glory of God? Enjoy the sunset, but don't stop at the sunset. Go where the sunset is intending you to go, which is worshiping the God who created it. Don't stop there. And here's the picking on us. And I want to say this rightly so that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We need to be careful as Protestants, as evangelicals, that we don't stop with the Bible. But that we see that the Bible is here for us to worship a person. If your doctrine ends at doctrine, you have settled for secondary because the purpose of doctrine is to worship Jesus. So I just redeemed myself for picking on Catholics, all right? Because my point is, is everybody's tempted to fall in love with the shadow and miss the substance. They're tempted to settle for the secondary. S- uh, angels are significant, but they don't hold a candle to Jesus. So why would you be preoccupied with that? Now verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And now here's what he's saying. Jesus is king, angels are servants. Jesus gets worship angels give worship because Jesus sits on the throne. Angels surround the throne. So hello, who's more important, the one that sits on the throne or the one who surrounds the throne? Well, obviously the one on the throne. Remember Isaiah 6? I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And above him stood the seraphim, and they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in that vision, who's supreme? The Lord is, not the angels. And then, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That is a picture of reigning. Are they not, now talking about angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So here's the final uh, rationale. Jesus is sovereign, angels are sent. Jesus is sovereign, everything will be placed under His feet. Angels are sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So who is greater? The one that has the authority to give the orders are the ones whose job it is to obey the orders. Well, obviously it's the one who has the authority to give the orders. Do you, do, this is why, by the way, I love the book of Hebrews, because it is so thorough as to explain why in the world would you settle for secondary when you have Christ. Christ. He is supreme. So his point at this point is there is no denying that angels are secondary to Jesus. In fact, even the angels would tell you that. Even the angels would say, don't come back to us. Go to him. So here's the question then. Therefore, 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 verse 1 of chapter 2. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. If God has spoken in this final word of Jesus, you better pay attention to it, lest you drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is so brilliant. The author is saying, if God spoke partially in the past, but has now spoke fully and finally in Jesus... If angels who helped bring the law are secondary to Jesus who brought salvation, how could you possibly go back? And if you thought consequences of neglecting the law were bad, imagine what they will be if you neglect the gospel. Imagine what it will be if you turn your back on Jesus Christ. Press forward in faith. Don't go back. Never Christian. Never settle. Never settle. Now what does this mean for us? What what, what does this mean for our life? Let me give you just a little bit of application uh, as we close in the next hour and a half. there's not a game on today anyways, all right? <laughs> what does this mean for our life? From, I trust from the text, what are some practical things that we need to think about and apply? Number one is this. Oh, faith family. Listen, listen, listen. Never, ever, ever, I beg of you, ever let secondary things become the primary thing. I think that is faithful to the text. Angels are significant, but they're secondary, a very, 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 distant secondary compared to who Jesus is. So don't settle for that because of Christ. And we do this in a lot of ways, do we not? I mean, you think about church traditions and styles and preferences that end up becoming more important than Jesus and the mission. May it never be here. That's a great place for an amen. I I heard Lakeville. It was full of amens, and I thank you for that. But may it never be here, may Jesus, may the gospel, may the mission that we've been given always be primary, and your preferences and our traditions and all the things we like or don't, that they become secondary compared to the mission that He's called us to, okay? May that be what we're about. The same is true theologically, where politics and your view of the end times and things like that become more important than the gospel. May it never be. Your view of the end times, or whether Adam and Eve had a belly button, or you know things very deep and important like that, um, some of you are like <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, those may be significant things, but they're not the most important thing. It's not the gospel. It's not essential to the Christian faith, and so we've got to keep the primary thing the primary thing. And by the way, you could apply this even in your relationships, uh, friendships, marriages, things like that, where you let secondary things become the primary thing instead of the primary thing being the primary thing. Here's my point. When you in your life, and certainly in your faith care more about secondary things than you do the primary thing, you are drifting away. And there are many uh, evangelical church that can testify to that, where they got off track on the main thing and their gospel relevancy drifted away. God help us and give us grace. Number two, never, ever, 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 please trade suffering for safety. If it means you get less of Jesus, don't trade your suffering for safety if it means you get less of Jesus. Now, I take that again from the text because the entire reason they're considering going back and certain back to angels is because they're trying to alleviate the suffering, they're trying to, to make life easier. But if they do that, the author is clearly pointing out, if they do that, they won't be worshiping Jesus. And so in this context of this book, worshiping Jesus will mean embracing their suffering. If they trade their suffering for the safe life, they will not be experiencing Christ. In fact... Notice it on the screen. Often, we worship Jesus more by our endurance in suffering, not our escape from suffering. Most of the time in the Christian life, we we worship God, we learn more about God, we encounter God through our enduring suffering, not escaping out of it. Some of you, I, this is, we've got a lot of people here, and I know a lot of you will not know um, a, a man by the name of Jake Chaya, but many of you will. He was uh, one of our elders, just rolled off our elder board, and he, he's been going through just several months of very difficult physical suffering, very, very, very difficult. I, I met with uh, Jake a few weeks ago, and we were having this conversation, and it was It was just a a beautiful, beautiful conversation, which is like every conversation you have with Jake. Um, And uh, this is what we talked about. In fact, when when I left him, this is what I prayed for him based on our conversation. I prayed this, keep my brother in this season of suffering until he's experienced you in every way you want for him to experience you. And then when that is done, release him from this suffering. Most of our prayers as Christians is, get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this. But what if God wants to reveal more of himself through this? So I'm not saying go find suffering. Application, go home today and suffer. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when suffering comes, don't trade it Too quickly, if it means getting more of Jesus and experiencing Him in a deeper way. Notice this on the screen. When you care more about comfort than you do Christ, you're drifting. You're drifting. Here's the last one. Oh, never, 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 ever, ever, ever let what you feel have authority over what God has said. Don't ever let what you feel have authority over what God has said. You say, where are you taking this from the text? I don't like to pull application out randomly, folks. Where is this in the text? It's the major point of this section of Scripture is this. Everybody listen, Lakeville right here. God has spoken. Pay attention to his word. God has spoken. He spoke at various times and in various ways in the past, but He has spoken now in His Son. Pay attention to all that He has said to you in Jesus, not how you feel based on your circumstances. Are you with me? Because you're going to have a lot of words in your ears When you're going through difficult times, friends will have something to say and parents will have something to say and the culture will have something to say, but your life cannot be based on those words. Your life must be directed by his word. And oh man, this is, I hope this is so practical and helpful. If, If you're in the midst of suffering right now, and if you're not right now, cheer up, it may happen soon. What you need to do in that moment is pay attention to what he said. Pay attention to what he said. He has spoken. He has given a word for you. He has given you promises. And drifting happens when you ignore those promises. When you don't listen to what God has said. And notice it on the screen. When you care more about what others say rather than what God has said, you are drifting. Faith family, I don't don't know, when I think about all the people that are coming here this weekend and in Lakeville, I don't know where everybody is in your race. And, And my guess is, my guess is you weren't driving here today considering going back to angels. But it terrifies me to think that there's a lot of you settling for secondary. And so I ask you as your pastor, if Jesus is the full and final Word of God, and He is, if Jesus is superior to everything in all of life, and He is, If Jesus has opened the way to abundant life in God, and he has, why would you ever settle? And all God's people said, amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for... Passages like this that much more than a coach and much more than a a parent or a teacher, that they get in our life, they get in our face, and they challenge us not to settle. As that quote from C.S. Lewis was, there's something that breaks within us when we settle for mediocrity, when we know that there was more and we never, ever experienced the more. Well, Jesus is the more, he's the greatest, he's the best, he's the ultimate, and so why would we settle for anything short of him? Holy Spirit, would you give us insight as to what that means in our life? Would you uh, expose the substitutes, the shadows that have replaced the substance in our life? And maybe, maybe it's revealing to us today that there's some in this place that have never put their faith in Jesus. They've been preoccupied with a lot of other things but never preoccupied with the most important thing and that is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Would they turn today by faith and surrender to him? Spirit, talk to us, lead us, guide us. Don't let us settle in Jesus' name, amen.